from a bar mitzvah at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem to a temple procession in Taipei. The people of our world are passionate about their beliefs. Are you listening? Tune in to the sounds of your world on Radio Taiwan International. Hello and welcome to Radio Taiwan International. I am Natalie So, and at this hour we have our new music show, Just the Classics. But before we get to that, join us for Here in Taiwan. Welcome to Here in Taiwan. It is Wednesday, June 3rd, and in the studio we have Paula Chow. Hello. And I am Natalie So. And we have a lot of interesting stories for you today. Taiwan is number 20 on the most popular wish list for destinations to travel to. Also, surgical masks are available now at all cosmetic and convenience stores this week in Taiwan. And we got a couple of interesting lost and found stories. What would you do if you found an urn with ashes inside and a gold bar? And we have a story about a poisonous snake and uh, what happened to the guy who got bit by it. Those stories and more are coming right up. Okay, so in Taiwan, we have been rationing masks for uh, the past few months, and they used to only be available at pharmacies, and you used to have to line up for about an hour. But this week, they're going to be available commercially, so you don't have to sign up, you don't have to take your uh, national health card, you can even buy a whole box if you want. Um, and they're going to be available in popular cosmetic stores like Watson's and Cosmed, Poya, and also convenience stores. That's good, but I don't think we need to stockpile on those face masks I because don't we have think so. more than enough. I know, because if you you know they do take up space in your home, right? Oh yes. <laughs> so, do you like um, have a whole lot of masks on on hand now? No, I think I have over thirty because I still you know I. You've been I, accumulating I have to take the bus. Right. Oh, you have to take and, the bus, and we are required to wear a mask on public transport. So that's something I. I must have one. Right. right. So do you change your mask every day, Paula? Oh, yes. You That's do. what I've been doing over the past few months. Actually, bus drivers are really strict because I think a couple of days ago when I got on the bus and noticed that there is an, um, another guy who didn't wear a face mask. So I heard that the, the bus driver told the guy to wear, um, you know, put on his face mask. And if he doesn't, the, the bus driver actually stopped the car. He waited wow. until that guy put on his face wow. mask, and then he drove away. Wow. So he's pretty strict. But that's not the only bus driver I, I encountered that was like the, that. The, the, right. There are, there are other bus drivers who also ask passengers to put on their face mask. Oh, so Taiwan is still, you know, I guess in public transportation, we're still using face masks. And oh, yes. That's a requirement. That's a requirement. Right. And even though we've had no domestic cases in the past 50 plus days, you know, so I think that we're actually doing quite well in containing the pandemic. And, uh, but we still have these face mask regulations in order for public transportation. Right. In general, like our health minister Chen Shizhong said, Taiwan is in general pretty safe right now, even though I think we had an imported case, right? 
Right. So it's mostly people getting them from abroad and bringing them back, right? Yes. So, but anyways, we are still um, wearing masks. A lot of people are wearing masks uh, on the streets. And so now they're uh, more readily available. And I think they're also going to be taking out some of the export restrictions. So because we have so many masks now, um, we've been, you know, multiplying our production lines ever since the pandemic began. So now we are like the number two exporter of masks. And we got a lot of um, supplies here. So they're going to be exported more and they're going to be available just to the average consumer without having to register and, and the like. Very convenient. What do you know about Taiwan? I know who the president is. What about their local music and food? Well, hmm, what do you suggest? Tune in to Radio Taiwan International. Here at RTI, we offer the authentic Taiwan experience. You hear the sound of remote attractions, the local food, music, the lives of real Taiwanese as they live it. Visit english.rti.org.tw. Listen to the real Taiwan. There's a recent survey um, about destination wish lists among global travelers over the past two months. But there probably hasn't been too much traveling. And um, this is from Booking.com. And, you know, most travelers actually have canceled their plans or decided to stay home. But uh, they still want to know which cities are the most popular cities for people's wish lists. Taipei was ranked 20th among 1,000 cities worldwide. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Right. So, well, I'll, I'll name the top 20 for you. It's London and then St. Petersburg. Really? I was there, actually. It's very beautiful. It's kind of like um, St. Petersburg is kind of like a European Russia or Venice, Venetian Russia. But London and St. Petersburg, I think those two cities have more... I mean, a lot more COVID-19 cases. Yeah, than I Taiwan. think that they're thinking of when this is all over, maybe. Okay. I don't know. Also Paris, then Moscow. That's interesting. I didn't know Russia was such a big uh, destination. And Dubai, Tokyo, Bangkok, Istanbul, Barcelona, New York. Oh, my New gosh. York. New wow. York is like the worst um, affected infected place in, in the U.S. Bali, Indonesia. Adler, Russia, Rome, Italy, Lisbon, Portugal, Amsterdam, Prague, Madrid, Sochi, Berlin. Wow. Some of these are unexpected, huh? Mm. So those are the places that people want to go. And it's nice to know that, um, yeah, Taiwan is up there. But even though the pandemic has been, um, you know, contained I mean, in Taiwan, also in other parts around the world, I... Personally, I don't think I'm, you know, I want to fly to anywhere else. Yeah. It's, I don't think you can really relax, right? Right. Because Even, the pandemic is not over yet. That's right. I mean, we can relax now in Taiwan, I think. But if we go abroad, we will be afraid if we'll catch the virus there, right? Right. That Especially was, there was an imported case yesterday. Right. So it's, the virus is alive and well all over the world. It's still spreading. Um, well, they, they also interviewed people in Taiwan and asked them where they would like to travel to. So for Taiwan, their dream list was topped by Tokyo. 
And then Osaka and Kyoto. Not surprising. Japan really? Is our neighbor and also, you know, so close to Taiwan. And, you know, people here, they love, you know. They love Japan. This, they love Japan a lot. And a lot of people do speak Japanese. They, they want to go there, I mean, do shopping, sightseeing. That's... Have you ever been to Japan? Nope. <laughs> no. I mean, I, I passed by there, but I never went to visit either. I don't know why. Bangkok and Chiang Mai. And then Nara. Seoul, Ho Chi Minh City. So these are all Asian cities that people want to go to in Taiwan. Interesting. And in terms of domestic travel, there was also a survey for people in Taiwan. Taipei was the top choice. And then Tainan, Hualien, Taizong, and Kaohsiung. Oh, well, Tainan, I, yeah, because that's an old city. Right. There's Lian, a lot of architecture Lian there. Hualien is famous for its Tarago Gorge. Right. Kaohsiung, mm, I don't really know <laughs> anything about Kaohsiung. <laughs> Taizong has uh, the Samun Lake oh, yes. and Ali San. Right. And Kaohsiung, they have Love River and a few uh, sites, I guess. So Paul doesn't travel too much around the island, do you? Mm, I don't hear you talk about it. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I think Hualien's really beautiful. Hualien's nice. Actually, I would like to go to Xiaoliuqiu. I think that'd be fun. Yeah, that's a little island off of the southern tip of Taiwan. I heard you can uh, uh, snorkel with sea turtles there. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So anyway, there's. I think domestic tourism is going to be very, very uh, busy during the summer because as of this week, I think, you know, a lot of the restrictions are going to be um, let loose in terms of public places. You can and gather wherever you want, and, and really, everything's open. So, and because we can't go abroad during the summer, we'll just uh, have to travel in Taiwan, right? Right, even our government is asking the public to, you know, uh, you know travel here, right. not abroad. Right, that's because, you know, our tourism industry has been hit a lot, right? But if everyone's going to be traveling, it's it, it'll help the industry. It'll help all the restaurants, hotels, and... And they will give us a, a, a coupon, right, in mid-July, I think, to and boost the economy. And what is it? You spend 1000 and you get 3000 Right. That's you have a- to pay 1000 first, and then you get a coupon worth 3000 NT. That's a pretty good deal. Mm. That sounds like... Does that make you want to go somewhere? <laughs> I don't know. It really depends. <laughs> Paul, you have a couple of lost and found stories. Tell us about those. Okay, what would you do if you found an ash urn? This is what happened to a security guard who was working at a um, residential building. One day, he discovered that there is um, a brown container. And he opened the brown container. He found that there's something similar to human bones. And he was trying to find the owner you know, of the, the the ash urn, but nobody said that's, you know, he couldn't find the owner. So after five days, he called the police and the police found um, uh, a person who, uh, what we called is a bone collector. Oh. You, you, you collect, you know, dead bones. That oh my person's gosh, job so is... someone does that? Right. Yeah, <laughs> that's his profession. Anyway, he found a bone collector and then the bone collector opened the, uh, the ash urn and he said that, well... Um, you know, these bones could be children's bones or, or you know, that, that that's a possibility. But anyway, what's scary is it, people, uh, especially police officers, 
who are involved with the case, they all felt、um, physically uncomfortable. You know, some people they complain they have a headache, some people with chest pain, others says that they have trouble、um, breathing. And even if they、um, went to see a doctor, it's just you know the situations didn't get better. So, so the police officers they don't know what to do. So they seek help from a an expert on folklore. They also ask someone to perform a simple ritual ceremony. I mean, this is to separate because most people would think that oh, it's ash or it's something inauspicious.、Mm. It's going to bring bad luck to you. So, but anyway, they just、um, a, a simple、uh, ritual ceremony, and they some police officers use、um, rice and salt to wash their bodies for three days, and after that,、oh、they're、gosh. you know they feel better. So this is you wash your body with rice and salt. Salt, yes.、Ooh. I mean, I don't know what this is. Just you know what they、um, that's what they said. But anyway, so、um, what do they do with the ash? So they they put the ash urn in a a temple. I, I'm not sure it's a Buddhist temple, a Taoist temple, but that's a place you know where the ash urn should go. So this is a little bit you know scary. That's a story about、uh, when you know people found an ash urn. But what if you found a gold bar? What that's a better.、Do? It seems more lucky, right? It's <laughs> it's it's a lucky one. It's a lucky thing, and this is what happened to. A couple who lives in Zhanghua County, and one day they found a、um, an old、um, cabinet. You know, somebody someone threw the cabinet on the streets. So they said, "Well, I think the cabinet looks good. Maybe we can keep it." So they kept the、um, the old cabinet, and then they opened the cabinet. They discovered a gold bar, and that gold bar、um, weighs one kilogram, and it it is worth. Fifty-five thousand U.S. dollars. Wow, fifty-five thousand U.S. dollars. That's a lot. So they don't know what to do. So they actually、um, they they call the mayor. They they talk to the mayor. They said, "Well, I we we found a、um, an old cabinet, and there there is a gold bar inside." The couple said they want to return the gold bar to the owner. And fortunately, they found the owner.、Oh, really? Yeah, they, they they found the owner. And the owner said, "Well, I didn't know that. It's probably something that left by their, you know, deceased parents. No, they just you know kept the gold bar in the、um, cabinets in the cabinet, and they forgot. They I guess the deceased family member forgot to tell their children or grandchildren. But anyway, so they returned the gold bar to the owner, and the owner is really happy. And the owner said,、um, <laughs> the owner, 'I'd be happy.' Yes, yes, of course. And the owner gave、um, the couple." Twelve hundred U.S. dollars as a reward.、Mm. However, the couple said, "Well, thank you so much, but I'm going to donate the money to,、um, to our community because we、Aww. don't really need that money." Oh, but this is interesting because according to、um, Taiwan's laws, if you find something and after six months, if nobody claims, you know that object, you can keep it. Oh. Yeah, you can keep it. So if the、um, you know the couple didn't tell the mayor, didn't tell other people that there is a gold bar inside the cabinet, they will keep it. So I think that's just they they're really lucky. Yes. No.、Oh, so seems like there's some nice people in the story, right? Yes. The couple and the person who didn't know they had a gold bar. Yes. <laughs> Visit RTI on the web. At English.rti.org.tw.
recently there we, there's a holiday called World Milk Day. Have you heard of that, Paula? Yes. Okay. Right. I think our <laughs> health ministry week. is um, urging the public to uh, drink more milk. Uh, more milk. Yeah, yes, that's true. To stay so, healthy. Yeah. Well, you know, the reason is that more than eighty percent of Taiwanese consume less than half of the recommended daily intake of dairy products. So that's almost everybody. More than eighty percent. We're not even drinking half of what we need in terms of dairy. So I know that people don't drink milk as much in Taiwan. Yeah, um, I don't drink milk at all because I, I think I'm allergic to milk. Oh, well, you know, there's other dairy products you can have, but you don't like cheese either. No. <laughs> yes. <laughs> cheese. How about yogurt? Yogurt is fine. Okay. Frozen yogurt is my Yogurt's favorite. Yogurt's really good for you too. has a lot of calcium. So they're saying that, you know, milk is actually one of the best sources of calcium. It contains many other nutrients. Um, the health, you know, administration directors recommends people drink a cup every day in the morning and then another one in the evening or consume other dairy products. So actually, I thought when you're an adult, you don't need milk anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I drank a lot when I was little, but I stopped drinking it when I grew up. Um, but I do love cheese. And they also said that children, older adults, postmenopausal women who are less able to retain calcium should especially try to get enough calcium. And they did a survey um, from 2013 to 16, and that's where they found out that more than 80% of Taiwanese consume less than one serving of dairy a day. Ooh. So you need at least two servings. So that's, that's the problem. They suggest also you can consume nuts, leafy green vegetables. Some of those have calcium. Um, cheese. The doctors said that, you know, calcium is essential for building bones and maintaining bone mass and density. It allows blood to clot, muscles to contract, and enables cell signaling. And calcium absorption from dairy products is higher than many other foods. So some people are lactose sensitive, so they can choose dairy products low in lactose, such as yogurt or cheese. And vegans can choose, you know, nuts and leafy green vegetables or tofu. Oh, tofu. Okay. Yes. Do you like right. tofu? Yes. Yeah. Right. So have some tofu and uh, yogurt. <laughs> yeah, popular ingredient in Chinese cuisine. That's true. Yeah. Milk is not that popular either as cheese. Yeah. But, I mean, it's become more popular, I think, in general, but it's not that popular in, in the food, in the Chinese cuisine. Anyways, that's just a little message from our health officials this week. Paul, you have a story about a poisonous snake. Tell us about this. Well, this happened to a guy who got bitten by a poisonous snake in the eastern Taidong County. So, of course, he called the ambulance, and the ambulance, um, you know, will take him to the hospital. However, on the way to the hospital, I mean, the tire blow out, um, blew out. Oh, no. So that's really, you know, it's really bad because, you know, it's a poison snake. Um, within, you have to do something right away uh, within one hour. Otherwise, you, the situation will be pretty bad. But so he is not lucky at all. But fortunately, um, there's a policeman who uh, drove nearby, and then so the, so the police officer actually, you know, sent this patient to the hospital within 30 minutes. Right, it's a 40 uh, kilometer ride. So, but in 30 minutes they got to the hospital. So this guy, he is in stable condition. His his life is not in danger. Oh, good thing. So he, it's you no, know, he got um, bad luck at first. Oh, bad luck, but then good luck with the police officer, yes, right, helping him right. out. 
Well, thank God that, uh, yeah, for that police officer. And I know um, you have some, the latest news about how the job market is for fresh grads during um, these times, these very challenging times around the world. Well, timing is bad, I guess, for college graduates all over the world, and including Taiwan, because this year there are 130,000 graduates in June. And then um, because of the COVID-19 outbreak, and so the um, job market is pretty bad for them because um, a lot of employers, they decided to um, not, not to hold um, recruitment drive and job fairs are canceled. And, you know, some um, young people have trouble applying for internships overseas because of the COVID-19 outbreak. And so, for example, there, there's one college student. She works at, uh, at a coffee shop for um, six half days and she earns she earns about 500 US dollars per month, which is okay. But however, however, because of COVID-19, her money has been, her salary has been slashed by half. Oh, so that's, that's you know, good. pretty, pretty serious. And according to a professor who, who specializes in human resources, he, um, he said that last year, about 27% of college graduates found a job before graduation. Oh. Now, that's uh, 27%. But this year, um, he predicted that only 13% mm. of college graduates will have a job before they graduate. Right. So, so the timing is really, um, is really bad mm. for college graduates. Uh, the college student that I mentioned, well, she has a part-time job at a coffee shop. And she is also, well, of course, her, her salary has been slashed by half, but her landlord is very nice to her and her landlord said that well i'm going to cut the rent by half oh really yes right so she's wow. she's pretty um she's pretty she's okay lucky. right and she also said well the the labor ministry our government is trying to help um taiwan's young people so they actually offer ten thousand uh, part-time job opportunities Ooh. however for college graduates like the woman i just mentioned she said that because um you know she has to go to her class in the morning so she also has a part-time job in the afternoon and night. She really doesn't have, you know, extra time to, you know, apply for the, um, the part-time job offered by the government. Well, at least our government is stepping in to help out. And yes. I think I, I did read that about 60% of companies are hiring as usual. So I think even though it's not uh, the best situation for grads this year, it's, it's better than probably most parts of the world where a lot of people even aren't even going to work yet, right? Mm. So um, uh, Taiwan is doing okay, but uh, it could be better. And the government is trying to help out as much as possible. So um, that's the latest uh, from here in Taiwan. And uh, do stay tuned for our new music show, Just the Classics. For here in Taiwan, I'm Natalie So. And I'm Paula Chow. We'll see you next time. Bye one night.
The Sound of the Puyuma Tribe on Radio Taiwan International. Andrew Ryan and Ellen Chu as they sample their way through Taiwan's culinary delights. Andrew, I thought we said no more intestines. <clears throat> That's on Feast Meets West every Saturday, only on Radio Taiwan International, radio for refined palates. Welcome to Just the Classics. I'm John Van Trieste. Taiwan has plenty of musical genres you might call classic, from the elegant, refined repertoire of traditional nanguan to the more down-to-earth folk songs passed down anonymously through generations. But ask an ordinary Taiwanese person today to name you a classic song, and they're most likely to name you one of Taiwan's pop standards. Popular music has been around in Taiwan since the 1930s, and it's evolved and thrived ever since. During the early years especially, Taiwan's artists released a string of songs that have stood the test of time in ways many works from older genres just haven't. It's some of these old songs I want to share with you today. What you're about to hear is a reworking of an interview I did in 2018 with Huang Yuyuan of the National Museum of Taiwan History, a researcher who's made the story of Taiwan's recorded music part of his work. Together, we'll explore the way that Taiwan's history has had a profound effect on its pop classics and how the music has evolved to meet the needs of each new generation. Our story begins with the advent of recording in Taiwan, during a time from 1895 to 1945, when Taiwan was under Japanese colonial rule. The first ever recording by Taiwanese musicians was made during this era, in 1914. A Japanese record company invited a group of well-known performers from Taiwan to come to its studios in Japan and record traditional music. These ethnic Chinese artists performed in a range of styles. There was the lively instrumental music called Bayin. There were also examples of opera in the local Hokkien vernacular. The performers certainly delivered. At this point, gramophone records had a playing time of around 3 minutes and 30 seconds each. By the time the performers went home, they'd filled over 100 of these records. The Hokkien opera you hear now is not from one of these first albums. This recording was made later, sometime between 1927 and 1930, but it's in the same vein as the first recordings. Traditional music like this accounted for the bulk of Taiwanese recordings into the 1930s. That was when jazz music began trickling in from Japan, a place where jazz had been introduced in turn not all that long before. Some Taiwanese records now started to feature Western orchestral backups. But not everything about this new music was really new. For one thing, many of the singers still came from the world of Hokkien opera. This was a world that came with its own musical conventions and the need to project from a stage. When performing songs in the new style, these singers often channeled the style and the techniques they already knew, creating a hybrid of Western and Taiwanese. 
In addition to the style of delivery, traditional meters of verse also crossed over. In the 1930s, pop songs stuck to the verse patterns of the opera, with many seven-syllable lines. This familiar pattern only loosened up in later years. The new songs also had pentatonic melodies that carried a traditional flavor, though in the hands of Japanese arrangers, these could sometimes take on a Japanese feel. All in all, this new music was an interesting blend. Through the colonial era, getting a Taiwanese record made was a difficult process. Taiwan had no recording studios, and so Taiwanese artists often had to travel to Japan. Other times, the record labels would have to send technical staff and equipment from Japan to Taiwan. Once in Taiwan, they'd have to make do with a makeshift recording space, spaces like the upper floors of restaurants rented out for the occasion. At this time, there was no track laying, and so everything had to go perfectly in a single take. For this reason, singers of this era spent much of their time rehearsing so they would have their songs down pat by recording time. The cost of even getting this far meant that marathon recording sessions were still the norm up to the end of the colonial era. Many albums worth of music would be recorded all at once, enough to give the companies material to last them for a long time. Sometimes albums were only released a few years after their recording date. Sometimes, Taiwanese musicians would hire labels to record their music for them. But most music came from the labels themselves and their contracted singers. One of the biggest labels for Taiwan's music was Columbia. This label had a big name. The story goes that Liu Qingxiang was born to noodle sellers in 1914, the year Taiwan's first records appeared. She grew up a fan of Hokkien opera and learned its style before going into the world of recording around the age of 20. It was at this time that she adopted the stage name Chun Chun and switched to singing the new jazzy style of music. Mr. Huang estimates that during the 1930s, Colombia put out somewhere between 200 and 300 Taiwanese tracks. He says around 40% of these, including some of the most famous, were first recorded by Chun Chun. Most of the songs you've heard in the background today have been hers. She was just that prolific. Here she is again in a duet called Dui Hua. It features another popular singer called Qing Chun Mei. Qing Chun Mei was a female singer with a lower voice, one that made her a popular stand-in for male singers when none were to be found for duets like these. Chun Chun would die young after a short career. She passed away in 1943, at around the age of 29. Qing Chunmei, meanwhile, is said to have married a Japanese person, leaving Taiwan and the spotlight behind.
Yes, even in its infancy, Taiwan's pop scene had its share of stars. But when we say stars, what do we mean exactly? Would people have recognized them on the street? Were they trailed by fans looking for autographs, or paparazzi looking for gossip? No, Mr. Huang says. At this point, our ideas about celebrity had yet to creep into Taiwan. And in any case, performers from the traditional opera stage likely had bigger name recognition. Pop music was new, with a limited market. And among the older generations, there was still a stigma against performers in general, an idea that they were low class. Any fandom, in short, was confined to the young. But while the world of singers may not have been a glitzy one, it could be a comfortable one. Those who signed exclusive contracts with labels got a salary, generating the kind of income many of them could not have imagined outside the music business. Mr. Huang says one of the longest-lived singers of this generation, a performer known by her stage name of Ai Ai, once sat down for an interview later in life. She described the singing lifestyle in this era as something special and different. It was a life not just of recording, but of rehearsals and of live performances as well. It's important to note here that even at this point, recorded music was something special. Live performances remained a common way to hear pop music and get to know new songs. Though concerts as such were not very common and often expensive to get into, people could also hear live performances on the radio and at stages put up at movie theaters. The movies were a big driver of pop music in this era, both recorded and live. Live renditions were important well into the 1930s, because until this point, all film in Taiwan was silent film. Even later on, only the big urban theaters had the ability to put in sound. This meant a narrator of sorts was needed to explain the action on screen, and musicians would be on hand too to add in a soundtrack, sometimes with a pop music feel. Theme songs written for films often became hits in their own right. These weren't movie theme songs as we know them. They might not even appear in the film itself at all. They were instead more like the songs that introduce old sitcoms, songs that set up the premise and introduce the plot, but cut off after building to a point of tension. If you wanted to find out what happened next, you'd have to go see the movie. This 1932 song was written to go with a film called The Peach Girl, an import from the Shanghai film scene. Mr. Huang says it's often regarded as the first ever Taiwanese pop hit. People would have heard these songs in both live and recorded versions. Albums of the songs would be released, but when singers made appearances at movie theaters, it was often to sing promotional songs like these too. In the run-up to a film's release, you could even hear these songs on the streets, played live in promotional parades meant to drum up interest. Mr. Huang says that during this period, recorded music remained beyond the means of many. A modest record player during this period could cost a teacher a whole month's salary. Meanwhile, an individual album might cost around the equivalent of 60 to 90 US dollars today. And often, albums were not sold individually, but as part of bigger sets. 
people who wanted to hear a record but might not be able to afford one themselves could often go down to their local general store. As would later be the case with TVs, general store owners were early adopters of the record player in Taiwan. From time to time, while away on business in the cities, they'd buy new albums and bring them back to share. Other places where records might be played included cafes, a new kind of space in Taiwan. Mr. Huang says young people like to gather in these places, places where alcohol was served as well as coffee, and jazz and other popular music would be played. In the cafes, people might occasionally dance. Meanwhile, more traditional music would sometimes be played at restaurants and tea houses. By now, we've heard a selection of songs from this era. But what about the really big hits, the songs people still know today? One of the biggest of these hits carries the English title, Waiting for the Spring Breeze. On the surface, it's a song of disappointed love. But over the years, it's become far more than that, a Taiwanese anthem of sorts. I ask Mr. Huang why that is. He says Waiting for the Spring Breeze belongs to a class of sad songs from this period sung in the Hokkien language. These songs remain popular through later decades when political oppression led people to reinterpret the meaning of the words. Stories of unrequited love, disappointment, or hardship came to be reinterpreted as the story of Taiwan itself. But all that would come later. In the 1930s, these were still just popular songs. This brings us to an interesting point about Taiwan's popular music in general. I ask if this era produced more upbeat songs too. Mr. Huang says plenty, and he even lists off a few. But he says they tend to be forgotten. And there's this mistaken idea that the old songs were all depressing. As we've just said, part of this has to do with later history when a depressed mood favored memories of the old sad songs. But part of it also seems to be cultural, something that goes back before pop music. Mr. Huang says the excerpts of Hokkien opera people remember best have always been the weepy bits. By the 1940s, the Pacific War was on, and policies pushing Japanese culture in overseas colonies took on greater force. I ask what effect these policies had on Taiwan's music. Mr. Huang says that's an interesting question, because the answer is a bit paradoxical. There were restrictions on the Hokkien language, he says, but old songs just got new Japanese lyrics. Part of the drive to instill devotion among colonial subjects involved holding musical events and spreading music education. The cultural assimilation campaign co-opted local songs like Waiting for the Spring Breeze, giving them new Japanese lyrics that could have a militaristic tone. Many people who'd never even heard the Hokkien originals now learned these songs as military songs. That's how many older people still remember them. In this way, new policies actually ended up making local pop tunes much more famous than they had been. The end of World War II brought with it the end of Japanese rule. A new era was coming, one of new trends, but also of tight, arbitrary censorship. 
At war's end, the Republic of China took control of Taiwan, and Taiwan's musical history entered a new phase. At the end of Japanese rule, Taiwan still had no recording studios or any way of producing its own records. This meant that after the war, Taiwanese albums simply stopped being produced for some years. The new post-war government was eager to censor music, but because no records were being made, it had a hard time doing any censoring. Music was still being made, of course, and some musicians from the Japanese period were still active, but there were no records. All performances were live, and the government found it hard to keep these shows under control. Even into the 1950s, as local recordings emerged, the poor technical quality and the small scale of reach limited government attention. In any case, at this point, the need for government censorship was questionable. This, after all, was an era of Cold War paranoia, martial law, and frequent political imprisonment. The artists themselves could be relied on to self-censor. This tune from the 1950s, played here in a later cover version, is one example of a self-censored work. The song is called Missing My Hometown, but it was originally a different song entirely, one linked to a play. The song had been a hit, but the original lyricist was taken by the government, allegedly for his left-leaning sympathies. The song's composer was now afraid that unwanted attention would fall on him next, and so the composer found a new lyricist and put new words to the song. With the arrival of the 1960s and the rise of vinyl, the government got more proactive. An index of banned songs emerged. The bans were often arbitrary, and it was not always clear why a certain song had been banned. There are examples of songs being banned for just being too sad. There were also songs banned for being too strange, for having lyrics with unclear meanings, or for having allegedly lewd undertones. One Japanese song, rewritten with lyrics in the local Hokkien language, got banned after someone suggested it had once been a pre-war Japanese military song. The bands were rarely effective. In fact, in an age when official media rarely reported on popular music, an announcement of a newly banned song raised curiosity and could lead to a surge in illicit record sales. Some Taiwanese songs of the 50s and 60s that are still well remembered today include this selection, My Hometown at Dusk, again performed here in a later cover version. There was also a song called Mama Take Care. But a large group of really popular songs from this period were actually imports from Japan. As we've already heard, in part because of wartime history, singing Japanese songs could be a bit touchy in post-war Taiwan. Singers could get around restrictions on bringing these songs in, though, by simply translating the Japanese lyrics into the local Hokkien language and performing them as local songs. This jaunty little march from the 1950s is one example of a Japanese song that got this kind of Taiwanese makeover. As before the war, Taiwanese music remained wide open to foreign influences. 
But Mr. Huang says a history of colonization and similar musical tastes meant that Japanese music was by far the most influential for some time. There was some Western music and even a little Korean influence at this point. But just a quick glance at where pirated foreign albums came from is enough to show how much more popular Japanese titles still were. Western music got big in the 1970s. But even as this was happening, there was a move on university campuses away from foreign imitations as young people looked inward and began to stress their own voices. The so-called campus songs of this era are well-remembered as a whole. But Mr. Huang says the term campus songs describes a movement, not a genre. Aside from the fact young people wrote them, there was often little that these songs had in common. The artists and songs fell into many different camps. Some went the artsy intellectual route. Others took on a more rustic style. Some artists, in line with government initiatives, stressed aspects of traditional Chinese culture, while others looked to develop a more local Taiwanese voice. Young people ate up songs like this one, sometimes translated as Moon Zither. This song tells the story of a real-life traveling bard who once sang songs throughout Taiwan's far south. As Mr. Huang points out, the traditional instrument heard in this song is not the moon lute the song refers to, but that didn't seem to matter. There was something about the song's wandering protagonist, traveling the land, singing his lyrics, that struck young people at the time as admirable and authentic. The campus songs weren't just limited to campuses. In fact, they found a broad popular audience, and they're still sung today. The government's reactions to campus songs were varied. Since some songs aligned with the government's cultural policies, it was at the very least not opposed to them. But other songs, songs with themes of reflections on society, or songs showing certain political leanings, were banned. In 1987, decades of martial law came to an end, and slowly the restrictions on recorded music began to crumble. Restrictions of the past, like a requirement to send new songs for pre-approval, were scrapped. So too was a 1970s system of licensed singers. For a time, no one without a license could perform music on stage. Getting a license required an audition, sure to require a solid rendition of patriotic, government-approved songs. By the time the very last of these restrictive rules were dropped around the turn of the millennium, Taiwan had transformed from an authoritarian dictatorship into a thriving democracy. Its singers and poets, meanwhile, had created a body of classics that continue to have a big impact on Taiwanese people today. I'm not just talking about their catchiness or popularity at karaoke, either. One Taiwanese airline, for instance, plays a medley of these old tunes during boarding and just before landing. To most foreign passengers, this might seem like just some easy listening music. But I can't tell you the number of Taiwanese people who've told me that when they hear these songs, they feel all fuzzy inside, homeward bound even. These are songs that tell Taiwan's story, that have penetrated Taiwan's psyche, and that definitely deserve to be called classics. I'm John Van Trieste, and I'll see you again soon.
Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 9405 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 9405 kHz. And in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International.